You are now listening to the September 16th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Screwtape Letters, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Screwtape Letters. everyone, I'm Terry, the host of the Screwtape Letters. We have been sharing stories regarding our spiritual warfare with the devil, drawing from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. This book was written by C.S. Lewis, considered one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century. Through this broadcast, we remind ourselves that we are engaged in a spiritual battle, where devils are constantly strategizing and executing their plans to torment us and lure us as their prey, using any means necessary. We will consider the 15th letter today. In this letter, Screwtape provides a detailed explanation about why humans should be made to live in either the past or future rather than in the present. During the time when C.S. Lewis was writing this book, Britain was in the midst of World War II. The patient has recently become a Christian and is the main target of the devils in the book. With the effects of a global war looming large, the patient experiences vague fears of being drafted into the military. In this particular letter, number 15, Screwtape becomes aware that the war has somewhat quieted down and entered a state of quietude. Consequently, the patient's anxiety has also entered the state of quietude. Now, Screwtape contemplates whether to leave the patient in this state or continue to make him anxious and worried. He suggests to his nephew, Wormwood, that they should devise a strategy. Screwtape provides a detailed explanation of the enemy's perspective, namely Jesus Christ's perspective on eternity and the present. Simply, humans live in the present, but Christ has prepared eternity for them. Therefore, he seeks to focus people's main interests on both eternity and the present. In other words, Christ with his eternal presence would naturally lead people to focus on eternity. He would lead us to follow the voice of conscience that speaks to us in the present, bear the present cross, receive present grace, and express gratitude for the present joy. In contrast, devils aim to make humans depart from their enemy's perspective of eternity and the present. Screwtape explains to Wormwood that causing humans to constantly dwell in the past or live in the future would be a good thing for their purposes. Since the future represents an opaque and unknown world, making humans think about the future leads them to indulge in unrealistic conjectures and imaginations. If they waste their time in this fantasy-like state, devils can easily drag them into their own world. In other words, Devils desire humans to focus on the future and accumulate treasures for the future, while Christ does not want humans to be preoccupied with the future and its hypothetical rewards. Suppose someone is engaged in a task. If he constantly thinks about the future, his motivation for the task lies in the imagined outcomes and potential satisfaction he anticipates in the future. He would continuously extend his thinking into the future and worry about some hypothetical results, with the vague hope of receiving some rewards. In contrast, if his mindset is focused on the present, he would realize that the task at hand is not his own, but something that is given to him by the Lord in the present. He would then diligently devote himself to the task 
without projecting or pondering about the outcome, entrusting everything to the Lord, and maintaining a mindset of patience and gratitude. Which attitude and mindset do you have in your life? We might take a moment to reflect on whether we have a future concern or present-oriented mindset. Now, let me read an excerpt from the 15th letter in the Screwtape Letters. In this excerpt, he is Christ, and we refer to the devils. He does not want men to give the future their hearts, to place their treasure in it. We do. His ideal is a man who, having worked all day for the good of posterity, if that is vocation, washes his mind of the whole subject, commits the issue to heaven, and returns at once to the patience or gratitude demanded by the moment that is passing over him. But we want a man hack-ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present if by so doing we make him think he can attain the one or avert the other, dependent for his faith on the success or failure of schemes whose end he will not live to see. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future every real gift which is offered them in the present. What Screwtape says here is very frightening. For one, the current generation does not seem to appreciate the true gift they have received from Christ and live their lives in the manner consistent with what Screwtape says. We live in an era where dishonesty and deception are frequent, with the hopeful belief that we will live better in the future. This generation turns a blind eye to present injustices for fear of personal loss in the future, willingly surrendering to injustice. It is an era when everything that can bring joy and gratitude in the present is relinquished in pursuit of a better hypothetical future. Living in such a world, we have to wonder if we as Christians are faithfully fulfilling our role as the salt that prevents corruption and as the light that dispels darkness. Or, unknowingly, are we also becoming corrupted by the devil's schemes? To conclude, Screwtape argues that it is far better to fill the patient's mind with thoughts of war and what might or might not happen in the future rather than leaving them in a state of present anxiousness. This is because it prevents them from reaping the true gifts of the present and keeps them consumed by the uncertain future. The patient knows and understands that Christ was there in the past and is still with him in the present and will be there with him in the future. However, if the patient, despite living in an era of war, remains steadfast, not because of Christ, but because he has vaguely convinced himself that the future would be better than the present, then this can also be a favorable signal to the devil. That would mean he is experiencing a self-delusion and not a genuine faith, and if the patient's self-induced, vague yet positive hope were to shatter one day, unexpectedly, his spirit and flesh might fall into a deeper abyss of irrecoverable disappointment. If that were to happen, the devils would rejoice. To the contrary, 
the patient being fully aware of the war and the imminent possibility of being drafted and potential death might pray to the enemy for the strength and courage to overcome these challenges. He might try to seek the enemy for refuge, knowing he is the sole dwelling place of all obligations, grace, knowledge, and joy then. When this happens, this would be a highly undesirable state for the devils. In such a case, there is no need to devise strategies. That means time is running out for the devils. The situation is desperate, and the thing to do is immediately attack. Therefore, if you feel that your life is currently under attack, do not be bewildered or confused. Rather, stand firm and take heart. These attacks are evidence that you are living as a true Christian. As humans, even for those of faith, we sometimes cannot tell friends from enemies. But devils, as spiritual beings, do not get confused who their friends are and their enemies are. If you find that your life has been very comfortable, cozy, and nothing could be better, it might be time to thoroughly examine your spiritual walk. We conclude today's program with the passage from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11-20. through 20. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. May all of us stay strong in our spiritual walk. See you next time.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is, How to Experience Your Highest Good and Greatest Joy. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. We're going to read today one of the most important, central, foundational texts in all the Bible. Mark chapter 12. So start with me in verse 28. And one of the scribes comes up to Jesus and hears people disputing with each other and seeing that Jesus was answering them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So a little background here. These scribes had identified 613 different commandments from God. 248 of them were positive, as in do this, 365 of them were negative, as if, don't do this. And then the scribes took those commandments and they ranked them into less or more important commandments. So the scribe asks, out of 613, which one is the most important of all? And in verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, Jesus is not giving a new commandment here. He's quoting from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, probably the most famous verse in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. The only difference in Mark 12 is Jesus adds, and with all your strength. But the point is the same. Love God with all. You see it over and over again, four times. All you are, all you have. This is the most important commandment. And then Jesus continues. He doesn't just stop with number one. He also gives number two. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And that is also a quote from the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where God in his law had said to his people, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But now, for the first time in history, Jesus is putting these two commandments from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus chapter 19 side by side. Love God with all you are, all you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, there is no commandment greater than these. Now we're going to come back to this because those three verses, Mark 12, 29 through 31, are the foundational verses for life, foundational in the Bible. But just see what happened real quickly after Jesus said this. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now it's interesting, up until this point, scribes, when they talk like this, like saying, Jesus, you're, you're right, teacher, they didn't actually mean it. They were trying to trap him. But in this instance, it seems like this guy's actually kidding it. And maybe he was sent to trap Jesus. But now hearing what Jesus is saying, he's thinking, huh, you may be right. It's the only time in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where a scribe is pictured as favorably disposed to Jesus. And the next verse, verse 34, is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus commends a scribe. Watch this. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So what was it about what Jesus said that seems to have won the scribe over and is seeming to shut everyone else down? Well, what Jesus just said in verses 29 to 31 summarized the whole Bible and the whole purpose of life in three verses. In fact, in Matthew's account of Jesus saying these words, Jesus added, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Like all of God's word hangs on these commandments. And they are interesting commandments, aren't they? Just think about it. The most important commandment is to love God with all you are and all you have. Well, who is giving that command? Ultimately, it's God, right? God the Father in Deuteronomy, God the Son, God in the flesh, Jesus here in Mark. So God is commanding everyone, including you and me, to love God. The most important thing you can do in your life, God says, is to love me. And not just can do in your life, but must do in your life. This is a commandment. God says, you must love me. Does this not raise questions in your mind? Like, is this self-centered of God? For him to command us to love him? And then, is it love if it has to be commanded? Isn't love felt, not forced? Is love an obligation? Or is love an affection? Is love something we have to do? 
Or is love something we want to do? So these are thoughts we need to grapple with. If we're going to feel the weight and wonder of what these verses mean for our lives. So let's think about these two most important commands. And let's just ask some basic questions. You might write these down. Four questions to be exact. Number one, let's ask, who is giving these commands? And we've already said God is, but let's be more specific. Who is God? The one giving these commands is God, who is the only sovereign, infinitely holy, supremely satisfying, perfectly loving, creator of all and Lord over all. Now, I know that's a loaded sentence, and we don't have time to unpack a theology of God in depth, but we need to realize who's giving this command, who God is. From the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, he is the only, there's only one God, no other gods. The only sovereign, meaning independent, self-governing, authoritative being in all the universe who is infinitely holy in all of his attributes. He is without error and he is without equal. He is supremely satisfying. Everything that is beautiful and powerful and peaceful and joyful and just emanates from God. And he is perfectly loving. God is love. God defines love with his very being. He is the creator of all things, including all people. Everything and everyone has its genesis in God. And he is Lord over all things, which means he rules and reigns over everything and everyone. This is who is giving these commands, which then leads to a second question. Well, who is receiving these commands? Who is God giving these commands to? And the answer is us, who are all created by God in the image of God to enjoy relationship with God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God has created us, unlike anything else in all creation, unlike the fish or the birds, or the livestock, or just animals, and insects, and mountains, and oceans, and stars, and planets. God has created you and me in his own image, like him, so that we, unlike anything else in all creation, enjoy relationship with him. This is awesome. See the dignity and worth and honor and meaning and purpose you have right where you are sitting right now. You are personally created, made, formed, fashioned by God himself in the image of God 
to enjoy, for the purpose of enjoying relationship with God. And don't forget who the God is here. You've been created to enjoy relationship with the only sovereign, infinitely holy, supremely satisfying, perfectly loving being in all the universe. It's what you are made for. This is who you are, which then leads then to the third question. So third question is, why? Why does God give these commands to us? And not just these commands, but all kinds of commands. Why does God tell us what to do? And the answer the Bible gives from the very beginning is because God lovingly desires our highest good and greatest joy. This is also clear from the beginning of the Bible. God's first commands to us. Genesis chapter 1 Verse 28, right after we read what we read just a second ago about man and woman being made in God's image, the Bible says God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God blesses man and woman and God says to them, he commands them, be fruitful and multiply. God is telling his people, how to experience fruitful life to the full all over the earth. And then in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Does that sound like God wants to make life miserable for man? No, this is God saying, I'm giving you every tree in the garden to eat and enjoy, except for one. And if you eat of that one, you shall surely die. And I'm telling you this, God says, so you won't eat of it. So you'll live, which is what I want for you forever. And thus begins the story of how God lovingly gives his people commands Always, always, always for their good. So here's just a few other examples that make the point. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24, 25. The word Deuteronomy means the second law, the recounting of God's commands. And the Bible says the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us, if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. God's commands are always for our good. Things will be right. They'll be good for us when we obey his commands. Or look at Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 39 through 41. God says, I will give them one heart and one way. They may fear me forever for their own good. And the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they might not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and my, all my soul. What a picture. God wants good for us, good for our children after us. God rejoices with all his heart and with all his soul 
With all that God is and all that God has, God lovingly desires our highest good and greatest joy. Are you hearing this? Just make it personal. Why does God give commands to you? Because God, the only sovereign, infinitely holy, supremely satisfying, perfectly loving, creator of all and Lord of all, this God lovingly desires your good and your greatest joy. This is really good news. What if God didn't desire this? What if the only sovereign, all-powerful being in the universe did not desire this? If he didn't desire our good, we'd be hopeless. It would be horrible. But God always and lovingly desires your highest good and greatest joy. And if that's true, which we've seen clearly it is, then the question is, do you desire this? Do you desire your highest good and greatest joy? Do you want your good? Do you want your joy? If so, then what should you do? Well, that leads to our final question, number four. How can you experience your highest good and greatest joy? I'm making this personal to you because I assume you want your highest good and greatest joy. Who would not want that? And this is where Mark 12 comes in because this is the question that Jesus is answering in our passage. If God's commands are for our highest good and greatest joy, then what's the most important one or two? And Jesus says, well, there are two, and all the others hang on these two. These two just explain how to do the other two, but if, if you get these two, you will have your highest good and greatest joy. If you just get these two, so what are they? And Jesus says, the way to your highest good and greatest joy is first, love God with all you are and all you have. And now it all starts to make sense. Let's connect the dots because God is the only sovereign, infinitely holy, supremely satisfying, perfectly loving being in all the universe. So if you want your highest good and greatest joy, then you want God. Because there's no one and nothing in this world that's better than him, greater than him, more satisfying than him, more loving than him. So if you truly desire your highest good and greatest joy, that desire will inevitably lead you to God, which now, keep putting the pieces together, is the whole reason Jesus came, because you and I have all been separated from God by our sin against God. You and I have all been separated from the only one who can satisfy our souls. You and I have all done what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. We've turned aside from love for God and we've loved other things and other people, namely ourselves, more than God. Adam and Eve foolishly loved. They desired a piece of fruit. 
more than they desired and loved God. And we have foolishly done the same with all sorts of things in this world, thinking our ways are better than his ways. And it has left us empty and broken apart from God and actually deserving the just and holy judgment that flows from God. But the good news of the Bible is that even though we have turned from God, God has pursued us. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. And just a few days after Jesus said these words in Mark chapter 12, Jesus died on a cross to pay the price for sinners against God. And just a few days after that, Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin so that anyone, anywhere, no matter who you are or what you have done, anyone who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be forgiven of all their sin and restored to relationship with God. This is the greatest news in all the world. You, right where you are sitting, can be restored to love relationship with the only sovereign, infinitely holy, supremely satisfying, perfectly loving, creator of all and Lord over all. You can be in relationship with him now and forever and experience ultimate satisfaction for your soul in God. That's the gospel. So, do you want your highest good and greatest joy? Then love God with all you are and all you have. And now we come back to our questions at the beginning. So, is this self-centered of God? For God to say, love me. And as soon as you ask that question, in light of all we've seen, you realize, well, of course it is. And that's really good news. Because if God is the only sovereign, infinitely holy, supremely satisfying, perfectly loving being in all the universe, and he loves us, then what's he going to give us? Some cash? Some power in this world? Health for a time? Comfort? No, all of those things fade. None of those things last. They ultimately will leave us empty. If God really loves you, then what's he going to give you? He's going to give you himself. He's going to give you supreme satisfaction in him that will never, ever fade, that 10 trillion years from now will be brighter than you realize even right now. He's going to give you perfect love that will last forever and ever in him. God loves you so much, he gives you himself. He gives you a love relationship with the one who's better than everyone and everything in this world put together. Which then leads to our other questions. So then, is loving God an obligation? Or is loving God... Affection. Is love for God something we have to do, or is love for God something we want to do? And the answer is yes. And you say, well, how can it be both? Well, just think. A couple of human illustrations of this. Edward John Cornell authored a book on Christian commitment. 
And at one point he writes, suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of a must. And what she means is, it's more than a must in the sense of a husband feeling like he's obligated to kiss his wife. Although it's right for him to love her as her husband, that's right and good, but there's something more needed. And what will make that marriage life-giving is if he must kiss her because he loves her so much. It's a beautiful blend of good and right obligation and good and right affection. Or uses another example, saying, suppose a mother rushes to help her terrified child. She acts out of spontaneous love, and she would even be offended by the suggestion that she must help her child from a legal sense of duty. So in one sense, yes, the mother has an obligation. As a mother, it is right to care for her child. But she must run to him. Why? Not merely because of a legal sense of obligation. So much more than that. She must run to her child because she has such affection for her child. So must we love God? Well, yes, in one sense we must because he alone is God. He alone is supremely lovely. But certainly that's not the whole story. We don't come to church and read the Bible and pray because we feel obligated. That's not Christianity. No, we love God and we must come to church and read his word and pray. Not because we feel obligated, but because we know our souls will find satisfaction in God. Which begs the question then, is that true of you? If your spiritual life feels like you're just supposed to go to church or read the Bible or pray or share the gospel, then you may be missing the point. You're created for a love relationship with the God of the universe. The reality is so many supposed Christians actually love this world and tack on Jesus to your life here so you can have heaven in the next world. Just look at our lives. So many supposed Christians come to church every once in a while when it's convenient, pray here or there, read the Bible here or there. Always spend our time and our money on all kinds of things in this world, money and prosperity and positions possessions and comforts and ease and health. That's not Christianity. That's nominal Christianity. Christianity in name only. It's not real. It's not following Christ. Following Christ means you have found in God 
something, someone who is better than everything in this world and you want him more than you want money or prosperity or possessions or comfort or ease or even health itself because you know your highest good and greatest joy are not found in these things. They're found in God. So you want God and you love God with all you are and all you have in Christianity, in Jesus Christ. You are now free from the pursuit of empty, fading pleasures in this world because you found highest joy, highest good and greatest joy in loving God. And don't miss it. There's so much here because now when you face trials in this world and you lose some of these things, you lose people or prosperity or comfort or health. You've not put your hope in those things. You've put your hope in the God who's greater than all those things. And even if if you lose them all, you'll still have love relationship with the supremely satisfying, perfectly loving creator of all. In other words, you have a joy that transcends any circumstances in this world. You have highest good and greatest joy in the God over this world. This frees you for a totally different kind of life. And, now this is the second part. The way to your highest good and greatest joy. Love God with all you you have and love others as yourself. So how does this go together? Oh, this is so good. So think about this command from Leviticus 19 and Mark 12. God, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. What a picture. God, Jesus, assumes, clearly knows we love ourselves. And many people in our self-esteemed, obsessed culture skew this passage to say, Jesus is commanding us here to love ourselves. Because we can't love others if we don't love ourselves. We need to start with loving ourselves. Only problem is, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you you already love yourself. You, You want food for yourself. You want clothes for yourself. You want a place to live for yourself. You want friends for yourself. You want happiness for yourself. Even when we make foolish decisions that are unhealthy for our lives, it's because we're convinced making those decisions will be good for ourselves. And follow this. Jesus is not saying it's bad to want food, clothes, place to live, friends, happiness, and so on. God actually gives us desire for those things. What Jesus is saying, though, is just as you want those things for yourself, and you make sure you have those things, I'm commanding you to want those things for others and to make sure they have those things. So if your neighbor is without food, help them get some food. If your neighbor doesn't have a place to live, help them find a place to live. If your neighbor is without friends, be their friend. And as your neighbor wants happiness, help them find happiness which then leads back to the first command, right? Because if you truly want, love your neighbor, then what do you want for them? You want their highest good and greatest joy. And where is their highest good and greatest joy found? In God. Which means to truly love your neighbor is to do all you can to lead them to love God. How can you experience your highest good and greatest joy? First and foremost, 
by loving God with all you are, all you have, turning from yourself and your sin and the pursuit of things in this world, loving, seeking, being satisfied in relationship with God. And as you love God, then the overflow of that is loving the people around you in the same way that you want them to know the love of God. You want them to find life in loving God. This becomes your guide for marriage. You live as a husband or a wife to reflect God's love for your spouse. You live to help them find life in loving God. This becomes your reason for parenting. You live to reflect God's love for your kids and to help them find life in love for God. You don't live, not ultimately, to help them get great grades, do great at sports, go on great dates, learn to make a great living. No, over and above all that, you live to help them love a great God. It changes what you do with your kids. This becomes your reason for every facet of life, whoever you are, single or married, student or adult, wherever you go to school or work, whatever you do, you live to help others. This week, find life in love relationship with God. You reflect His love for them. You point them to His love for them. And you might wonder, well, wait a minute, how does the second part, loving others as myself, How does this lead to my highest good and my greatest joy if I love others as myself? I love that question. I want you to think about it with me. Just think some examples. Have you ever led someone else to faith in Jesus? I guarantee you that if you have, or if you ever do, you will experience immeasurable joy in realizing that through your life, this person's life, has been transformed for all of eternity. Like that's, that's joy. That's infinitely better than watching your team win a World Series. Like, do you know why? Because God has actually designed your heart to find great joy in loving other people. And now we see, at least I pray, we hope, I pray and hope we see that these two Greatest commandments from God go totally against the grain of this world. This world says that the way to live, the way to life is rebelling against God and doing things on your own. Love yourself. Trust yourself. Live your truth. And God says, no. I love you so much and I have made you so much more than that. I love you so much. I have made a way for you to experience life now and forever in a love relationship with me and my supreme satisfaction of you. And as you love me and I set you free from the fading pleasures of this world, I also set you free to find deep and lasting joy in leading others to experience life in my love for them now and forever. This is what our lives are all about.
following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. And I believe we're going to see how we can keep from being discouraged when suffering. You see, when you're suffering for Christ, there are all kinds of difficulties that can come upon us that can shake us up or throw us off. And one of those is even false teaching concerning the things of God. It can distract us. It can pull us away from what God has really said and cause us to be shaken up or troubled. 
And God is a gracious God. He doesn't want anyone to be taken captive by false teaching. We see that in Scripture. Now, as we come to 2 Thessalonians, we're going to see that we must heed God's warnings concerning false teaching and teachers. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 1 through 5. And the context for this book is pretty much the same context we had for 1 Thessalonians because the two letters were written very close to one another. And as you know, when we studied 1 Thessalonians, in Acts chapter 17, we have the account of the salvation and conversion of the Thessalonians, the birth of the church at Thessalonica. And we know that Paul remained there at least three weeks and taught them a ton of truth. And he even refers to that later on in our book here and also in 1 Thessalonians. And the Jews of the city were so enraged about the teaching concerning Jesus, they created a riot and Paul fled to Berea and then on to Athens. Now in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, we have the account of the conversion of the Thessalonians how they turned to God from idols to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now remember that. We're going to talk about that today. And they also received the word of God. They didn't receive it as the word of men. And non-believers think it's man's word. But believers who've been saved and changed by the Spirit of God receive it not as the word of men, but the word of God. Or those who are being convicted and saved as the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. And then the Apostle Paul, after sending Timothy to find out about their spiritual condition in response in Corinth, as he's staying there for 18 months, writes 1 Thessalonians, and we see that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are still together, which means it's during that same time in Corinth that he writes 2 Thessalonians. And it's thought that 2 Thessalonians is written very soon after 1 Thessalonians. Now we need to remember... This group of believers are very young in their faith, probably less than a year old in the faith. And yet Paul, inspired by the Spirit, launches into serious teaching and doctrine because we all can understand those things if we have not become dulled by sin or have hardened hearts. And we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, and that happens through His Word. And so they're young in the faith. But what was going on to prompt this letter to be written so quickly to these Thessalonians after the first letter? Well, As we saw in chapter 1, they were afflicted for following Jesus Christ. They were afflicted. They were suffering greatly. And God made it clear that He would bring about, as they endured, it was an evidence they were His, but He would bring about ultimately the punishment of those who were afflicting them and relief for those who were afflicted. They were enduring and suffering. They were going through difficult times. And we saw even last week that because our suffering's temporal, Paul wanted to continue to encourage them and gave him a tremendous encouragement as he prayed that the Lord would cause them and us to live up to our great calling and that every desire for goodness that we have in Christ would be fulfilled and that our faith for him would work out powerfully in these situations so that Christ would be glorified all by his grace. And then we come to chapter 2 where we see another element of why he wrote the book. There was obviously some bad guys trying to put out some counterfeit falsehoods claiming to be truths, claiming to be God's Word. And so that's where we come today, where we're going to see how we can keep from being discouraged or shaken up from false teaching that portrays itself to be right, but it really isn't from God. Turn your Bibles again to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. and We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. 
And we're really going to be focusing on one and two and part of three and three and four and five. We're going to really hit a lot stronger next time because there's a lot here. So we're going to touch on that portion. But I want to read the entire chapter because it's all together and we need to see it all together. Otherwise, we can misinterpret the small pieces we look at. And when we study scripture, you never want to just study a small piece without always going in and out, looking at the broader context. So I want to read this for us. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember while I was still with you? Now they're only a year old in the faith, saying, hey, I was with you three weeks, I was telling you this stuff. Do you not remember? I was telling you this while I was still with you. I was telling you these things. That's as far as we're going to get today. Obviously, you can see there's a lot there. But let's keep reading. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring it to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because, and this is important, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged, who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is important, this part now. So then, this is we'll look at this also, so then, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or of mouth or letter from us. It's important. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. This is a comforting passage, even though it deals with reality. You know, denial is not comforting at all. Knowing the truth and having a God who shares it in the context of what he is doing is encouraging. Now, if you're following Christ, you're going to enter in at some time suffering, and we want relief, and we do look forward to that ultimate relief we will have when we are with Christ. We know that. We know it's only for a season when we suffer for Christ. Yet, think about it. How would you feel if Bible teachers came to tell you and, you know, snuck in, hey, Christ is not coming for you. You're going to have to go through the tribulation. You're going to have to go through this horrible judgment. 
You're going to have to go through this. And maybe you're even going through it now. Things are so tough. Well, that was the situation that was going on with these Thessalonians, but they were suffering much greater than we are suffering. You see, they were awaiting Christ to deliver them from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. They were told that they were not destined for wrath. First Thessalonians 5, verse 9. They were eagerly awaiting the reunion with Christ in the sky, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And now it looks like Paul wants to protect them from those who might falsely relay a message as from him that the day of the Lord has actually already come or in the presence. And that's what this passage is about. Now you say, I understand the Thessalonians that they're suffering and the threat at that time. And, you know, yes, I understand how they could get shaken up over that. They have their hope fully in Christ. And then someone says, hey, you missed it. The day the Lord's here. He's not coming for you. You're in the tribulation. I understand how they could be shaken up with that. But for us, how does it apply to us? Well, the reality is, you may be aware of current trends in churches these days. The evangelical church or form type churches and now starting to infiltrate good Baptist churches, you see there's a Reformed theology out there, and it's growing in popularity, which is actually not Reformed at all concerning eschatology, which means end times. It's basically the same Catholic end times eschatology before the Reformation brought forward. It didn't get Reformed. And so from that, it's a theology that eliminates what we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and John 14. It eliminates the rapture. It eliminates Christ coming for his church. And that's kind of disturbing if you look through it because he's going to come in the context of judgment. And that's what we're waiting for? No, the reality is we're waiting for Christ to deliver us first. And there are bad people out there that may have a sound doctrine, but they're either deceived brethren or false teachers laying forth these things that mess up people. Now, given the church response isn't to be shaken up like the Thessalonians, the other response that we see of evil to these false doctrines is pride. Spiritual pride in those type of doctrines that we see. So it's dangerous no matter what. It's dangerous. False teaching is dangerous no matter what the response of those who enter into it and allow it to permeate their hearts, as we will see. So what are we to do? What are we to do as believers? Well, we need to heed the warnings, just like the Thessalonians needed to. And that will keep us from being discouraged by false teachers and teaching. Keep us from falling into that, being kidnapped by theology that is not correct. And I've seen it. I'll tell you with this end time stuff. I see people who are totally kidnapped by Reformed theology. That's all they talk about. That's all they're connected to. It's not about Christ anymore. It's about all the things that go on in their little theological box. Folks, it's not good. So what are we to do? We're to not let false teachers and deceived brethren so quickly shake us up. Notice Paul begs these Thessalonians to not be easily shaken or frightened. Look at here, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, it's really important that we understand what's being said here, or those same false teachers could manipulate us even with this passage. 
It's really important. Notice he is beginning by making a request. We request of you. And he says, we request of you with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. This request is an entreaty. It is entreating someone to do something. Please do this. Please. Now we request, and he says, brethren, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, later on he's going to say, our Lord Jesus. He combines the reality. That's, they're saved. They're in Christ. You see, when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and say you believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, you enter into the family of God. You become a child of God. And what a wonderful thing it is. First John 3, 1. See how great the love of the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. And he's saying, Thessalonian brethren, he's saying, hey, I request of you, brethren, we request of you. Now, what's the request? Because we need to break this down really carefully and understand it rightly, or we could be manipulated by those who take difficult passages and twist them to their own destruction. He says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, that, here's the request, we request you, brethren, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. The request is that you don't get shaken up quickly from your composure or be disturbed. That's the request, but there's context around it. We request that you don't get shaken up literally in mind. And the word shaken there actually comes from a word that's used in other places to speak of an earthquake. Just shaken up, an earthquake. Acts chapter 16, an earthquake there it has. So I'll show that later. Speaking of being shaken up, and it's shaken up in mind, and they've translated it in your composure. And the word here, disturbed, literally means troubled or frightened. We request that you don't so quickly let this happen to you. That's the request. Don't let it happen to you. Don't let your mind go the wrong direction. And we're going to see based on falsehood. You see, we can let our minds go the wrong direction in all kinds of ways, can't we? You bet we can. And when you want to follow the Lord, you want to hear his word. And this is an interesting time because the word of God hadn't been complete. So as we saw in First Thessalonians, there were prophetic utterances. There were the apostles and prophets bringing forth the word of God by mouth. And then there was also the writings that they wrote from the Old Testament and then the apostles from the New Testament that we have. And yet there were false apostles out there, false teachers out there, false prophets out there. So the request proper is don't get shaken up so quickly in your mind, and troubled or frightened. But what is this regarding? What's this regarding? This is really important. Now we request you, brethren, with regard. Here's what it's regarding. With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now in Greek, those sentences go together. It's not two different things. It's one thing described in two ways. You can't say it's one and two. It's one unit in Greek described in two ways. So he says here, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now the phrase Lord Jesus Christ is used nine times in this short book, along with the term Lord Jesus many times, over 20 total, I think, for all of it. 
Now, the term Lord speaks of deity. It's Jesus is the Lord. And the term Jesus is his human name. God the Son took on human flesh. You shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Yeshua, the Lord, saves. Yahweh, that's what that means. Yahweh saves. Yeshua. And then the term Christ speaks of the anointed one, or the Messiah. He is the anointed king who came to suffer first and then for his glories afterwards, to die for our sins. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so Paul says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So what is he saying? Well, notice just in an observation, our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. He includes himself, Silas and Timothy. They're believers. The Thessalonians are believers. If you have rejected Christ, he is not your Lord, although he is the Lord. But here it's personal, our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. So what is he talking about now? As we look at this first section, coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, what might this be? There are actually two specific possibilities. And this word coming, parousia, does just mean coming. Now, people have taken it and made it mean one specific thing, but in Greek it just means coming, and the context determines which coming that is. And so he says here, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our gathering to him. Now, there's two comings that we need to look at in Scripture that we need to identify. Which one could it be? Could it be what we call the rapture of the church, which I'm going to go through briefly in a little bit? Or could it be the coming of our Lord, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, folks, in light of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll look at this in a minute, verses 13 to 18, and the phrase, are gathering together to him. That's very important. That helps us identify that this passage is not speaking of the second coming of Christ. We are not gathered together to Jesus at the second coming. He comes to earth, as we'll see, and defeats his enemies and slays them with the sword of his mouth, okay? But before that, as we'll look in a moment, we are gathered to him together as he comes to deliver us from the wrath to come. So I believe it's speaking of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And again, as I shared, this term parousia can speak of, you know, either coming, the second coming or the coming of him for us. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm not going to teach through this again. If you want to hear about the rapture and all that stuff, go to that sermon. We spent the entire time on it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. So I'm not going to hit everything. I'm just going to really briefly walk through what this gathering, the coming of the Lord and gathering of us to him is. Because that's what this is regarding. That's what he says. I request that you'll get shaken up regarding this because someone is saying this. That's what he's saying. Okay, so look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may grieve as the rest who have no hope. He starts out saying, hey, Thessalonians, those people who died, who came to faith, don't grieve about them like the rest of those who have no hope, like people grieve that don't have any hope. You see, the reality was they were new in the faith. They're waiting for Jesus Christ. It's less than a year, and believers within that time had died, and they were concerned. They missed the coming of Christ. They missed his gathering together. Where are they? What happened to them? And he says, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant about what happened. And notice he explains, and I'm again, I'm not going to go in detail as I did before. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's the qualification. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you applied the work of Christ to your heart by faith? That He died for your sins and rose from the dead. If that's happened, the work of faith by Christ and your heart, He says here, even so, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That's the souls of those who have died. You see, if you were to die today, your body would be right there and they would take it and put it somewhere and do something with it, whether it's to be put in the grave or whatever it is. But your soul goes to be with the Lord if you're a believer, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so the bodies went in the grave and they were concerned what happened. They missed Christ coming, but their spirits went to be with Jesus. And he's saying, don't worry about that because they're going to come with him. They're going to come with him, but something's going to happen. He says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, now that's the people who are alive when Christ comes, and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. That's what that means. It's a euphemism. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So he's coming with their souls. They've been with him, and their bodies are resurrected when he comes. And in the air, they're glorified forever and ever. And then those who are alive and remain, notice what he says, live and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.